we started a series through the book of Genesis, and you've already heard uh, the scripture read, but uh, what we'd love to give to you is a Genesis journal, just as a gift for you today. Um, and if you did not receive one on your way in, you have my permission to get up and slide out to the back right there at the connection table. We have some Genesis journals. We'd love to give you one just as a gift so that you can, um, this is a, uh, only has the book of Genesis, so if you don't know the Bible well, congratulations. You can't get lost. Uh, literally, it's the only book uh, included in this journal. And what it has is the scriptures on one side and then pay, uh, just uh, journal paper on the other. And this allows you to be able to, like, I know some people freak out about writing in their Bibles. I don't write a lot. I underline, but I use like a, a straight edge. I'm like very meticulous, OCD-ish, um, about my Bible. <laughs> so I don't draw on it. But uh, this is a journal, and this is, allows you to be able to circle words, underline, like write around the margins, and then you have that whole page. Now, I know some of you who have your journal, uh, your Genesis journal, are running out of space already because you were that kind of student in school. And we all know who you are. Um, we love you. Uh, <laughs> but I would say this, don't worry, because we're going to pick up. There's so much in these first three chapters, and this is what I want to uh, help you to understand if you're new to church, new to the Bible. Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis itself is a huge book, and like extremely important for the rest of Scripture. If it were gone, we wouldn't understand what was happening in the rest of the Bible, really. We wouldn't understand even who Jesus is and what he came to do if we had uh, Genesis removed and all the teachings that uh, it had it laid uh, as a foundation for the rest of Scripture. So it's essential. But chapters 1 through 3 are the core of the core. So much of of uh, what we understand about, uh, about who God is, about who we are, about what's going on in this world, what's wrong with this world, what's the hope that we have in this world, all are rooted in Genesis 1 through 3. So if you're filling up all your pages, uh, don't worry. Um, we'll pick up about Genesis 4 and start moving along a little faster. Uh, this is going to last about 10 months, not 10 years. So we will speed up, I promise, to get through all of Genesis. Uh, and so don't worry about uh, space if you're running out of it. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at God's forming uh, and filling of the world. And that's a great summary of what really Genesis 1 is about. It's God forming the world. He created out of nothing. Um, and those, the, the description of him uh, filling it and, or forming it and then filling it are captured in the days of creation from Genesis 1. If you're like, well, I wasn't here that week. I don't know what those mean. Are that supposed to be 24-hour periods? Um, I don't have time to even begin to go into all of that again. But let's just say, uh, go back and listen to the first week um, because we unpack and begin to talk about some different ways of understanding uh, those verses that might be helpful for you. Uh, but then God, so he formed and then he filled the world. Uh, and then last week we looked at the final day or day six of the actual creative process. And he created man and woman, right? It says, and he made them in his image and he gave them what we called uh, or what is called the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We were, we were put here to, uh, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and practice dominion and subdue it as God's image bearers. So we're not highly, just we're not like some highly evolved animal that just happened to dominate the whole scene. Uh, we are appointed by God as image bearers uh, to rule and reign in His name in this world, and that includes taking care of this world, taking care of creation. Um, today we're shifting uh, a little bit. I, I know you probably heard it as you, as it was read, but um, there is a little bit of a break 
it, it seems weird uh, th- how these relate, um, but what we're going to do is look at Genesis, how Genesis 2 goes back and relates to Genesis 1, because it sounds like he's creating again, right? Genesis 2, as we just read, it sounds like God's like, okay, and the seventh day came and he rested, and then God made the world, right? <laughs> um, it sounds like a, a repetition, but it's not, and, and we'll, we'll take a little bit of time to talk about how Genesis 2 fits with Genesis 1. Then we'll talk about what it meant that God rested on the seventh day and what that ultimately means throughout Scripture and, and for us, and then we're going to have a very, land in a very practical place. What does it look like for us to Sabbath or to rest uh, today as God's people? So how does Genesis 2 fit with Genesis 1? I am glad you asked that question because it's right here in my notes, and that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, if you notice, like I said, it sounds like he's building another creation. But what Genesis, uh, part of the, what's going on here that makes it difficult for us in English is, is a chapter break, right? If you noticed... Days one through six are in chapter one, but now all of a sudden you start chapter two, verses one through three, and it's day seven. Then in verse four, he starts creating again, it sounds like. So first, let me help you understand the chapters and verses are not in the original. They were not even added until the, uh, around, together until around the 16th century. And they were added so that we could find our place in Scripture, because it was really hard to ask people to find where they are in the Bible. If you're like, hey, you know, we're early in Genesis, you know, a few pages in, a few chapters in, just find it where it says this. Uh, so they found the chapters and verses were helpful for citing, for referencing Scripture. So they weren't there. So really, day seven just comes after chapter six. But those who were adding the chapters decided to very intentionally create a break there because day seven is so drastically different. Right, if you notice, day seven is nothing like the other days. It is um, the, the, the seventh day of creation is known as the Sabbath. Or if you have Jewish friends, it's the Shabbat, right? Um, you've heard uh, folks maybe around even in uh, Brookline refer to that. We're going to spend most of our time looking at that today. But uh, this is not just super significant in the creative process, but actually shows up throughout the rest of Scripture, the ministry of Jesus, and has implications for what salvation really is in and of itself. Uh, but we're going to look at that more. But what I wanted to ask the question is, verses 4, really, verse 4 of chapter 2 through verse 18, which we just read, or the rest of chapter 2, how does that relate? Because it sounds like a repetition of chapter one. Well, to think of it this way, the first few chapters of Genesis, first few like sections of Genesis are trying to give us different uh, scenes or different uh, uh, look at the creative process and some things that happen shortly after creation. So think of chapter one and the six days, seven day, even the seventh day of creation as a big zoomed out image. God, God's like zoomed way out. We're looking at the universe and creation of the universe. And, and at a real distance, you're seeing God creating things uh, on the days of creation, right? And then the mankind on day six and resting on day seven. Chapter two zooms in. If you notice, he doesn't make all the things he made in chapter 1. It's really focused on ultimately about mankind. Uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and through the rest of the chapter is almost exclusively about mankind. There's a little mention of some plants and things, but, but largely it's about, it's about human beings. So what he's done, it, the, the writer of Genesis says, here's the big zoomed out picture. We're zooming in here. We're looking at how God created human, humanity and what he created us for. And then in chapter 3, it zooms in even more to a particular scene in, in the creative uh, process or shortly after uh, creation. 
Chapter 2, verse 15 or, relates, uh, says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So this is why God made us. We're going to talk about, or talked about this a bit last week, if you remember, when we talked about being made in the image of God. And, and we talked about the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Chapter 2, verse 15 gives us a little more of a focus. Now, if you've got your journal Bible, you'll want to circle the word work and keep in that text, because those are huge words, really important words for our understanding of who we are and what we are to do as human beings. The word work uh, is the actual Hebrew word for service, and it has the idea of cultivating or bringing something to its potential. It has the, uh, the, the idea of where culture came from is rooted in this exact idea that we are to work, to cultivate, to bring something to its potential. And then the word keep, has the, the, um, the idea of care or protection for it. So human beings were put in the garden to, to bring the garden to its potential and then also to watch over it, protect it, and care for it. So that, that covers a lot, right? That, and that's, that's ultimately sort of what we are to do in this world and how we're to relate to the larger world that we're in. So I don't want you to miss this. Work was created before mankind fell into sin, right? I know work is a four-letter word, um, but it was created before we rebelled against our creator, which means we were made for work. Our work was made for us. We were given work, and work is good. Now, if you were to read a lot of the ancient creation accounts or even try to look at it from a philosophical perspective today, work itself um, really is, is up to you. It's up to you to assign meaning and purpose to work. But when you look at the way God created in Genesis, work is given a dignity. It's given a dignity in connection with who we are as image bearers of God. It's not our identity, but it is one of the ways we express our identity. God was a working God, right? God worked in creation. He made creation. We are made in his image. Therefore, we work and we do things in creation. I know for some of you, it's hard to think of work as good. <laughs> Most of us, all of us, certainly at points. But I think about like... Um, I think we've had a taste of it. I would say that most of us have had a taste of, of, of work being actually a really good thing. So think back to your job. Think back to your, your life and the days you've worked. And think back to a day that just worked, right? Like a day where things seemed to just happen. Like you were, you were in the zone. You were getting things done. Your coworkers weren't annoying and getting in your way. They were actually helpful. And you were able to produce or achieve or get, you checked off your whole to-do list. Do you remember that day? You did your whole to-do list. Um, and you finished the day and you're like, I almost like forgot about myself. I was given myself over to this and I, and I worked and it was a good day. Now, it was only one day, right? <laughs> none, of us get, none of us get many of those. Some of you have had horrible work experiences and you're still pretty young. So think of 10 minutes, 10 minutes of work in your work life that you remember. It was so good for 10 minutes. But that's a tiny, I think that's like, a, like looking through a tinted window at, at what work actually was created to be. But it's the joy of actually doing something in line with who God has made us. There's a dignity, even if you don't have your dream job, even if you don't feel like you're changing the world or making a big impact, there is dignity to work. 
People who can't work, they lose their jobs. You know what happens after a period of time? If they do not find work to do to keep themselves busy, what happens to people? We don't do well. We don't because work is part of what we're called to do in this world. You take someone who, is, uh, who has a disability, is handicapped, not able to work, and it's very challenging them for them to oftentimes to, to feel the dignity of work. And so it is part of what we were created to do. This is the idea of vocation. And Christianity in particular offers a really beautiful glimpse of a calling or vocation for, for every person. The uh, reformer Martin Luther um, really wrote a lot about this. The word vocation literally comes from the Latin word calling. And God has a calling, I believe, and, and Luther uh, teaches and the reformers taught, that, that God in his good providence over all of creation has put individuals in certain times and places, given them gifting, given them opportunities to use what they have been given in where they are at that time to serve the good of humanity. There is a calling. Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So there's not a person in here that God has not called to a, a particular service in life, it's a particular work. It does not mean that you're going to have your dream career and that's going to be the career you will always have. It just means there is a dignity. And I would argue today, if, if, if it's being a barista, like, be a barista today. You're not necessarily signing up to, I'm going to retire as a barista in 40 years. You know, like you can say, you can have, you can experience the dignity of being a barista today in that job, even though you're not changing the world, right? Or using your gifting or uh, finding yourself because there's a dignity in the actual work itself. And God designs it this way. So I would argue, be a barista until God opens up another opportunity for you. And as far as vocation, I have this conversation with a number of folks across City on the Hill. Some of you are like laser focused. You've been like, you know, at five years old, you're like, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. And like everything you did, all the schooling, all this, everything you learned, everybody you talked to was about that career. Many of us were not like that, right? <laughs> Many of us are still uh, trying to figure out, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. Um, but uh, <laughs> we, 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 we don't often have that kind of laser focus. That's Okay. Don't feel like God has, has left you out. I would actually suggest God has put you in a community. Um, community is one of our values as a church. And there's a great place God's given you in your community group to actually talk through these things. Hey, I'm thinking about doing a career change. Why don't you help me think about it, pray about it, like see where God's leading me and directing me. What a great gift that is to, as you press into this idea of vocation. So work has a dignity. Now, back up because God worked, but then this is what I want us to look at. Sort of the second point here is God's rest and the Sabbath. So, so the middle idea, a middle point of this passage today is looking at this idea of God's resting and the Sabbath for us in particular. So we're going back to uh, chapter two, verses one through three in particular. If you, if you read it, you, you may have noticed it. it. It seems to have like a flow. And that's because in the original Hebrew, there's a, it's, it's written in a, almost a poetic format. It's not, not quite poetry, but it is very linear in the way that it is written. Um, and it was written this way so that they could receive it orally, memorize it, and pass it down to, from generation to generation. 
Now, I know one of the theories that people have about in modern times is, oh, well, they, they learn these stories and they just embellish them and pass them down. They were terrible at this, okay? And the reason we know this is because every time we find an older version of the, the Bible, say like the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, knocked back the book of Isaiah for like 800 years. The copy we found at the Dead Sea, Dead sea was 800 years older than the oldest one we had. And you know what? It was 99.9% the same. And the biggest differences were usually just an accent mark on a, uh, in Hebrew, you, have, you don't have vowels, you actually have accents that tell you what vowel sound goes there. And it was usually something like that. It was never like, well, let's, let's take this story and we'll embellish it. Genesis was this way. They, this is part of God's purpose in his people remind, being reminded uh, of and remembering this idea of the, set, uh, of the seventh day. We can't see it in English, but there's 35 words here, a multiple of seven. There's three main clauses, three main verbs. Each of the clauses has seven words in it. And in each of the clauses, the word seventh shows up. It's very repetitive. It seems weird to us, but in Hebrew, it, it made it very easy to memorize and to learn. And they repeated it, repeated it multiple times. I know in, in, in Hebrew, this was one of the ways they emphasized things, just like your mom repeated to you, you need to clean your room. You need to clean your room. You need to clean your room, right? Mom told you that three times. What did that mean? She wanted you to remember that, not forget and so in Hebrew, repetition points to intentionality and uh, uh, trying to help us remember. This is not an accidental verse. In fact, um, what's on the screen here, should be on the screen, is a literal rendering. It doesn't flow very well in English, but it's a literal rendering of verses two and three. Notice how everything's parallel. So God finished by the seventh day his work, which he did. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he did. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work, which God created to do. So if you, wanted, if you, if you wrote down formed and filled in, uh, earlier that God formed the world, God filled the world, seventh day is God finished. It was finished. Formed, filled, and finished. It was done, and God stopped. God rested. And matter of fact, there is no more creative work um, after the seventh day. God doesn't fashion anything else until after the fall in Genesis 3, where he actually makes clothes for Adam and Eve. These three verses tell us that God rested on the seventh day and sanctified it. Um, that is, he set it apart as holy. And let's just say if God sets something apart as holy, that's important, right? It's not, it's not something for us to dismiss. He set aside this day as holy and he made it special as a day of rest. The whole Bible here points to uh, this idea of seven over and over and over again as, as a sign of completion or fullness um, or perfection. So you could go, we could walk through the rest of the entire Bible. I could show you seven here, seven shows up here, seven shows up here. Even in the book of Revelation, if you know it at all, there are the seven trumpets and seven seals and seven bowls, right? There are uh, over and over again, this idea of completion and wholeness. And it's literally built into creation itself. Now, some have thought, oh, this must be some special code you and I are supposed to figure out then. No, no, it's, it's way simpler than that. It's just seven. It's just this number meaning completion. Anytime you see it show up in scripture, it is almost always pointing to that idea. So God rested 
on the seventh day. As a matter of fact, uh, verse two and three mentioned rested twice. But I don't want us to get confused here because our idea of rest is not the same thing. We rest because we need it, right? We, we rest because we are tired. We are rest because we are exhausted. And it wasn't that God, you know, just used up all his strength to build the universe and fill it. And he was like, whoo, day seven, going to kick my feet up and order DoorDash, right? No. As a matter of fact, let's simplify this word a little bit. In the Hebrew, it's, the word rest simply means to cease. That's what it means. God ceased from creation. He ceased from creating. Why? Because it was finished. He had formed it, he had filled it, and now it's finished. And so he steps back. There's actually some ancient imagery here of the idea, and you can carry this on in through the creating of the tabernacle and the temple itself, that God was resting in his temple. Like a king who had, uh, had, had uh, complete dominion and power over his kingdom. He was enthroned. He was resting. He was ceasing from his work. And this seventh day became a central part of the distinctive life that God called his people to live when he led them out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Sabbath, if you remember it, is, there was a, there's a commandment about it, right? What does it say? Honor, what, keep, keep the Sabbath, right? And for it is holy. Verse uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, uh, it gives, is right after he says this, that commandment. He says, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So this is a, a day in the life of, of God's people that was to be set aside because God had set this day aside. It was a celebration. God, God and his creatures share in the celebration of his good creation. And God commanded it uh, for his people to enter this rhythm, to stop work, to cease our jobs. And listen, I know you're very busy. You're a very important person. You have a lot going on. You're very, you're in demand. You have a lot of things happening. Imagine telling, and, and we can look at back, oh, it was a simpler time. They were an agrarian society. Have you ever been around a farmer? Are they good at resting? Be good, just taking off. Like, we'll just let the crop sit today, right? We'll just let the cows feed themselves or whatever. Like, no, but this was what God commanded. And so they were, didn't mean they weren't supposed to feed their animals or whatever, but they were to do, they were to step back from the regular activity of work and set this side, uh, set aside this day to cease, to rest, and to see and embrace God's goodness in creation. It's a, it's a sense of experiencing the completeness and, uh, and the well-being God had accomplished in creation on behalf of all human beings. I want you to notice one more thing here before we move on. If you, if you remember the other days, there's a repetitive phrase at the, end of the, at the end of the creative process. It says, it was evening and it was morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day, evening, morning, third day. By the way, I said this earlier, but just if you're new, this is bonus points. This is why uh, the Sabbath starts at sundown and why Jewish people believe the day begins at sundown and not sun up. Because the created order, because at the end of the day was sundown. The new day began uh, or at the moment of, that the sun had gone down. So, there were, but this day seven, there was no evening, there was no morning described, is there? Most uh, theologians believe that this is because God had completed his work of creation 
And the rest, now as king of creation, was beginning and would not end. That he was now enthroned as king of all of creation, and his rest would last. And so the calling of God's people every seventh day was to stop and recognize God as king. Stop, stop your working Stop pretending like you can make everything. Stop pretending like you are going to provide everything for yourself. You can't control the weather. You can't, you know, he was trying to remind his people of this. And did you know every time that God's people got off track in scripture, their failure to keep a Sabbath was part of it. On the one hand, by the time it got to Jesus's time, they had the Pharisees. The Sabbath was, did not have a lot of guidelines around it in scripture. You were to cease work. But then the, the religious leaders uh, in the Old Testament leading right up to Jesus' time started adding rules. You can only walk so far. You can only do this much. You can only carry this thing. You can't do this. You can't do that. Which is, by the way, to this day, still in the hospitals on the Sabbath day, uh, there are elevators that stop on every floor because pushing a button is work. And a Jewish person who's practicing the Sabbath cannot actually push a button for the elevator. So they get on and every floor is lit up. And so they had added all these laws by the time that Jesus showed up in the New Testament. But then something weird happens, right? When do Christians worship? What is today? Sunday, right? We're not even worshiping before sun up. We're, we're worshiping on Sunday, in the daytime, on the latter part of Sunday, right? In, Jew, in a Jewish mindset. We're, we're on the back half of Sunday, by the way. As soon as the sun comes up, half the day is over. But Jewish people... It was Friday night through Saturday, what we'd call Saturday sundown. So how did that change? Well, it's interesting. One of the things that happened, there was so much happening in Jesus's lifetime. He actually first said the Sabbath was, uh, man was not built for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was built for man. In other words, it was given to us as a gift, right? To help us to rest. But then Jesus kept picturing uh, himself as rest and the early church began to celebrate uh, and worship on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. Now, this is, gonna, this, this is how one of the ways that the creation, going back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, fills all the way through the New Testament church and today the way we practice Christianity. Because the idea is that Jesus rose when? It would be the eighth day, the beginning of a new week. Right? And he instituted a new rest for his new creation. It's really interesting, isn't it? So the church doesn't celebrate on the end of the old week. We celebrate on the first day of the new week because we're in a new covenant, a new kingdom that Christ has purchased for us. Not that the old was bad, not diminishing that. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't understand who we are. We wouldn't have any framework for this if it were not for the covenant that God had with Israel in the Old Testament. But today, Christians get to experience a new rest, not because we, have a, 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 we take off every seventh day or whatever, but that because Christ is our rest. This is one of the most beautiful features, I think, of Christianity. It still blows my mind. Last week, we saw that Jesus came to make us new, right? We are new creation, new image bearers. And nowhere is this idea of rest connected with this more than in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Listen to what he says. You're familiar with this if you've, if you've been in church most of your life. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the core of Christianity, that Jesus is our rest, that we rest from all of our labors. We rest from uh, trying to work our way to God. We, we rest from trying to follow all the right rules and all the right rituals so God will accept us and love us and approve us and welcome us into his kingdom. Instead now, we look to the finished work of Christ on the cross, right? What did he say at the end on the cross right before he died? He says, it is finished. The work is done. You're in a new creation now a creation where you are not bound by your sin, bound by your shame, bound by your guilt, or bound by that endless treadmill of performance you're trying to, uh, trying to run on to somehow get God to approve you, like you, and accept you. Jesus is saying, rest is not somewhere you get. It is a person you walk with. So the Sabbath day for a Christian is not a day of the week, but a person. And it's resting in, it's knowing, it's walking with Jesus. And it's an eternal Sabbath for our souls. This invitation is for all of us today. This is the gospel. See, I told you how, how, how important Genesis 1 and 2 are for the entire Bible, right? And I think there will be work in the new heavens and new earth, but it's going to be good. It's like that best day or best 10 minutes you had, but better, right? It's going to be so good. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be very fulfilling. And you're going to enjoy living it out and walking with God and rest, having rest for your souls. Wouldn't it be great to be able to work and be rested? All right, so let's talk then about the Sabbath today. Because the question is, and, I, and I, well, I'll make this point. We are not bound. If you're a Christian, you are not bound by the Sabbath law. You're not. Interestingly enough, it's the only of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament as a command. Why? Because the Sabbath day was always meant to point to Jesus. Now, do not take this liberty. Some of you are workaholics. You're like, sweet, I don't have to take a day off. I can work seven days a week. No. Because while you are not bound by the Sabbath law, you are bound by the Sabbath principle. And the Sabbath principle is that if the infinite God of the creator of the universe stopped when he didn't need to, and he ceased and he rested, then you better believe you need some rest. You are a finite creature. And we live in a culture that does not foster this. In my reading this week, I came across a term called karoshi. I don't know if anybody's heard of it or not. It's translated overwork death. It's a Japanese term, literally real term, pointing to occupation-related sudden death. Quite literally, you work yourself to death. Major causes are heart attack, stroke, and starvation due to insufficient food and diet. Just a few years ago, okay? This is happening. It's still happening today. Japan's still trying to figure out how they stop that. In the West, we just ignore it. The woman in 1997 died from Kuroshi after logging 159 hours of overtime in a month. Overtime. It's insane. You might be thinking, I'm not going to go out that way. 
True. But just because you don't die from something doesn't mean it's good for you, right? Can we argue that that's not the threshold of whether health, something's healthy? It didn't kill me, right? No. Like seriously, the pace of life we live, the, the, the urban setting we're in, the immersion in technology, all of these things are stealing the rest from our souls. You don't believe me? Later today, just put your phone across the room and sit in a chair. No television, just sit, right? See how hard that is. Try, I know we're not, we never experience this anymore, but it's called boredom. Actually, psychologists are saying, and neurologists are saying, boredom is an essential part of, of uh, imagination and dreaming. Like when you allow yourself to disconnect from everything and you just are bored and your brain starts thinking, your phone's not entertaining you, you start thinking about stuff. And some of those things are good. And some of those things are silly and should never be repeated to anyone. But your brain, <laughs> but that's part of your brain. Your brain is playing. Your brain is relaxing. Your brain is unplugging. And that's a good sign, Right? Some of you have fields that demand long hours. I totally get that. Medicine, law, research, finance. My vocation is no different. Uh, turns out I work nights. I have a lot of meetings at nights, and I work every weekend. So um, it's not surprising that, that there are, uh, there's a lot of research out there about pastors burning out, uh, and some have even taken their life. And so I, I'm not immune to this. I, I can feel this at times. 37% um, of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. Many of those who do take more, that take more than a week still bring their laptops, their, their phones, and, uh, and are, in, are connected to work, which means basically it's a working vacation, which is an oxymoron, right? You get that right. It's not a vacation if you have to work. We are not resting, and it's showing up in our health, showing up, and, and I think the church in particular, we need to hear this message. Listen to this quote from... Um, A.J. Swoboda, who wrote Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. This is staggering. Our time, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technology, uh, technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on the edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's word, is ever learning but never able to come to knowledge of the truth, increasingly so. Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. We have become, perhaps, the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. As I read that, how you doing? <laughs> you know, they ask somebody, how you doing? What, what do you answer? Oh, I'm, I'm good, just busy. Busy. Is anybody here not busy? You know what? Have you met anyone that's not busy? Right? Like life has a way of filling itself up with activity and modern life more so than ever. And I would argue it's more important than ever that we stop. Because I think the root of why we're so busy are some lies that you and I are believing from our culture. Seriously, we have been colonized by ideas of our culture. Here's three enemies that are stealing your, rabbit, your Sabbath rest. Fa faster is always better. 
Now, faster is better in some things, right? It is. There are things it's nice to be able to, to do quickly. But you do know there are things you can't do quickly. Relationships are not good quick. We, you can't have a deep, meaningful text relationship with someone. Why? Because it requires face-to-face conversations. You have to sit and listen. You have to receive. And so, we, we, but, but our culture is enamored with faster and better. The second lie we believe is work is identity. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and keep it. They were image bearers who worked, listen, as an expression of their identity. Unfortunately, some of you are working for your identity. Seriously, if you lost your job tomorrow, you became physically incapable of working your job, how much would it destroy your soul? That should tell you something. Work as an identity. Listen, work is what you do, not who you are. And we need to remember that because then we'll keep work in its proper place. And the final lie we believe is that distraction is rest. Mm. Going from preaching to meddling now, right? Like getting up and everything. Listen, I know watching six hours of sports, 11 new episodes of whatever series is out, uh, scrolling Instagram or Pinterest or Twitter or news or whatever it is, staring at your phone. It is such a temptation. So easy to do, isn't it? But how many of you would just acknowledge with me right now that distraction is not rest? It's not, which is why we need to guard our lives even more to make sure we are getting rest. You need to build parameters around your life to protect your life, to protect uh, space for rest. So I want to give you a couple of resources for Sabbath, and, and we'll close. Sabbath, I want to remind us, is, a, is a, a gift for us. It isn't a rule to follow. It's a gift. It's not a rule. It's a rest that's given for us. That we are free because we rest in Christ. We are free now to actually rest, sleep. Some of you need to take a nap. It's okay. It's good. Let me give you a few uh, resources. Um, first, the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World by John Mark Comer. Let me say this, 7,617 five-star reviews, not 4.5, not 4.7, five stars reviews, 7,617. I, I have not finished the book, but it is, it is an excellent book, really good. It will read your mail in a good way. <laughs> read your email. Let's make it more modern, right? It'll read your email. It knows what you're, what you're doing, what you're tempted to, and he will br- help bring you back to understand rest. And he's actually written a, a PDF called How to Unhurry. It's a workbook. We've sent it to our community group leaders, and we're asking them to just uh, send that out to your CG so that you guys can talk through this. Um, but you know what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath? I know you're like, well, I can't just sit around. No, just because you're not active in work doesn't mean you're supposed to be inactive. Rest is, is good, but rest can be active. Traditionally, historically, the Sabbath, there's been singing, worshiping with community, walking, napping, making love to your spouse, seriously, reading, spending time alone with God, spending time with family and friends, practicing gratitude, feasting together, right? Like enjoying a wonderful meal, extended open time together where you're able to just laugh and be with others, a day of rest. Let me challenge you in your community groups to seriously at least take the PDF and think through that together. I actually would argue we're not going to do this well on our own. I know you. 
This might last a week. Oh, I rested one week and one day, and then the next week I went back to everything just as normal and never looked back, right? I don't want that. You don't need that. You don't want that. So talk to your community group about this and see if you guys can like begin to make some plans together. Some of you, as I close, came in here today tired, weary, worn out. You are exhausted from life. You're exhausted from circumstances. You're exhausted from your job, from all the weight that's on you. And they're not all bad things, right? Like work is not bad. Family is not bad, all those things, but it can weigh on you and on your soul. And what you need today is to experience the rest of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes where you are. And I want to read read to you the message paraphrase of Matthew 11, just so that you can hear the invitation of our Savior today. Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Father, we're where else in the universe could we get an invitation like this? Every one of us in this room feel weary and tired of something. Some of us feel overwhelmed in this moment, and yet you're inviting us in for rest. Not a momentary release, but a state of being our souls. I pray that we would look to Jesus in this moment and his invitation to come and we would trust in him. We would invite him into every area of our heart and lives and lay these burdens down. I pray Jesus for those that may not know you who've never experienced this true rest for their souls, that in this moment, they would turn away from running their lives the way they want, turn away from the things that have kept them from you, that they would turn away from their sin and come unto Jesus. And for the rest of us, God, just help us to, help us to look to you, even as we would take the communion and the bread and the cup and know that you have purchased our rest. It is paid for. We can come without money, without price and drink deeply of this rest. We need it, Jesus. Send your spirit now. Ask you, we plead with you. Touch every one of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.